case law, a listing of examples and illustrations of how the law should be applied in the context of a newly established nation of Israel. Now, this case law can be seen by the use of words such as if, whoever, when a man, and so forth. Just look at chapter 21 in verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, verse 4, if his master gives him a wife, verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies, verse 16, whoever steals a man sells him, verse 20, when a man strikes his slave so that he dies, and then verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death. So this case law is not exhaustive, but it's illustrative, giving basic principles and guidelines for proper justice, restoration, restitution, and reconciliation. And we can see that the bulk of chapter 21 deals with the subject of the value of human life. And if you remember that behind the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, was the value and the dignity of human life. So in chapter 21, we have case law given by God to Moses so that the lives of every Israelite would be treated with value and dignity, no matter their status or gender. So what we need to make sure we understand as we begin our study on this very difficult text is that it is given to us in a literary context. And it should therefore be understood in that context. God, God uh, sets it right here after the giving of the Ten Commandments and now in this section um, that uh, we are calling, uh, that itself calls the Book of the Covenant. And this section, of course, deals with the value and the dignity of human life. And so we should also take into consideration the cultural context of the day to consider how the culture understood the subject of slavery. Now, as Americans, when we come to uh, these 11 verses, our minds automatically seek to interpret them in the context of the slavery that we have experienced in the history of our country. But we must be very careful because we have a tendency to form our opinions very quickly. I mean, just imagine you, you meet a man for five minutes and already you're beginning to form opinions about him. Or maybe you've had a casual acquaintance with a woman, but already you've decided that she can't be trusted for some reason. We take just a, a few preliminary glances, put two and two together and quickly we pass judgment. And then sadly, as is often the case, the more we get to know that person, we find out that those initial judgments were wrong and that we misjudged them. And friends, this is often what happens when we come to Scripture. We come with our own ideas and we come with our own frameworks. We all come to God with, uh, or God's Word with frameworks. We, we come with, uh, to a text with preconceived ideas beliefs, and convictions. And with those uh, ideas, beliefs, and convictions, we tend to read what we think and what we believe into the text. Now, often our frameworks are political. Uh, they can be theological. They could be uh, uh, sociological. They could be cultural. They could be psychological. They could be national, even. And, and often we want the Bible to support what we think, what we believe, whatever those ideologies are. So we place ourselves and our ideas above the Bible, looking down on it, putting judgment on it, and saying, this is what we want it to say, when our job actually is to place ourselves 
underneath the Bible to allow it to say what it needs to say to fashion and shape us in Christ. And when we, when we do that, when we allow ourselves to have our frameworks be the lens through which we interpret scripture, then we will tend to treat the Bible dishonestly, manipulatively, and to suit our own agendas. Now, friends, let's just be honest and agree that we are all guilty of this. We put our frameworks, we put our ideas and our ideologies, our hobby horses, even our pet theology as the lens through which we will interpret scripture. And in so doing, we distort the text or we attempt to force the text to say something that it doesn't actually say. And sometimes we know what we're doing. And at other times, we don't realize how we are misusing the scriptures. The classic example is Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. When someone says with conviction and gusto, the Bible says we shouldn't judge, judge not, lest you be judged. Now, the truth is the Bible does say that, but we have to understand that statement in the context of what's happening there in Matthew chapter 7. And, of course, what's happening there is God is saying, look, you have a responsibility as a brother in Christ to help your brother with the speck that is in their eye. But you must use the same standard of judgment for yourself as you do for your brother. When you've done that, then you can actually confront them. Then you can point out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The point I'm trying to show you here is that we bring our frameworks to the text. And here, when we come to Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, it's so easy to come with our uh, American chattel slavery mentality and impose it, seek to impose it on the text. We see here and we read what it says here about the buying and the selling of male slaves and female slaves. And so our minds quickly go to that chattel slavery. That was a blight on the history of our nation especially during the 19th century. Now, friends, we, we recognize that, that it was an awful time. It was an awful experience, but that is not the only understanding of what slavery is all about. So we, in our contemporary context, are quick to be horrified by, by what we're reading. And we might even begin to question whether or not the Bible is trustworthy or not. How can the Bible endorse slavery, we say? How come there isn't like this 11th commandment that clearly says you shall not buy or sell men or women as slaves? In our eyes, that would make a lot of sense. It certainly would solve a lot of problems. So the question then is what is going on here? Well, let's look at the subject of slavery. We'll, 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 we'll begin talking in general about it here, but then we'll kind of bring it down to the context of this text. Slavery has been around way before the African slave trade began. It's been around since uh, most of recorded history, but the, the people tended to enslave people that were like themselves or lived near them. So Asians would enslave Asians, Africans would enslave Africans, Europeans would enslave Europeans. But it isn't until the more modern colonial period that the slavery began to take a more racial Cues. You could even say that racism is the result of slavery, not the root cause of it. But there are other kinds of slavery. So let's just consider slavery under two headings, voluntary slavery and involuntary slavery. Let's talk, first of all, about involuntary slavery. 
Um, and it takes place in a number of ways. First of all, there's slavery as a result of warfare. Now you see that throughout history. One country defeats another country or another group of people, and often what happens is they are taken captive by those people. They're taken away from their hometowns, from their country, maybe to another country, and they are then put in uh, as, as servants or as slaves in the context of that victorious country. That is historically commonplace. In fact, you find that in scripture where, where Israel is taken captive and into Babylon and, and they are removed from their land. Then there's slavery as a result of oppression. And that's what happened to Israel in Egypt, isn't it? They've been welcomed by Pharaoh to settle in the land because of Joseph's loyalty and leadership in helping Egypt endure famine. But years later, when the name Joseph had been forgotten, Pharaoh and the Egyptians began to fear the Israelites and put them under the heavy hand of slavery. That's kind of a more modern example would be Hitler and the Jews. Because the Jews, being resourceful and wealthy uh, and hardworking people, were despised as worthless. And there was the systematic gathering up of the Jews, yes, to kill them, but many of them were also enslaved in the process. So slavery as a result of warfare, slavery as a result of oppression, and then slavery as a result of kidnapping. Just read in chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Now, friends, it, it can't be any clearer than that from the Mosaic law that God is opposed to the kind of slavery that we had in our country because of this very text. But we see similar slavery today, especially in the sex and labor trafficking world. In each situation, people are either kidnapped or tricked into their servitude, and they're held in bondage by abusive perpetrators. So these are the three ways that, that slavery happens involuntarily. But there's also a voluntary kind of slavery. And let me give you three examples of what I'm talking about here. There's slavery to pay off a debt. First of all, in many cultures, if a person doesn't have any money to pay off a debt, they, are, they make arrangements with the, the debtor to work off their debt. That was very common. Secondly, slavery uh, uh, as a means of progress or survival. If you were poor and were starving, you, you might consider selling a son or daughter to either be married into a wealthy family or to serve as part of the labor crew. You would be considered one of the household if you were one of those slaves. And you'd be given food, you'd be given clothing, you'd be given shelter, and you'd actually learn a trade along the way. The goal was for that son or daughter to have a better life than the poverty that you found yourself in. So this was kind of a welfare system in particular, we'll find out for Israel. And then you have what's understood to be indentured slavery. Uh, this took place when men and women sign a contract by which they agree to work for a certain number of years in exchange, in our history, in exchange for passage to America, where they would be provided with food, clothing, and shelter and once they arrived, and then also a job. But they were, they were committing to a particular amount of years. Again, the goal was to work uh, and to work hard to get a better life. So the idea here then was progress, was, was movement for people who really had no opportunity. And a modern day example of that uh, can be found in the military. 
Uh, there, there are many people, especially those who are lower income, who, who see serving in the military forces as an opportunity to make progress, to move out of their poverty and to develop skills and abilities. And so they willfully sign a contract in order to serve in the military, but they are guaranteed a wage, food, shelter, clothing, uh, training, and even education along the way, uh, things that they wouldn't necessarily be able to get otherwise. So they are they're going to make progress, to make a better life for themselves. So let me just summarize this. What we need to make sure we understand is that slavery comes in many forms, and not all slavery is involuntary. Some slavery in history was viewed as a way out of poverty and to make progress in the world. Now, remember I said culture, context, and the meaning of words. And I'd like for you to do something that maybe you've never, ever done before. If you have your ESV Bible with you, I, would, I want you to turn to what's called the preface. It's right at the beginning of the Bible. And by the way, I would encourage people uh, when they get their Bibles to read the preface, to read the introduction so that you can get an understanding of the, the, the philosophy behind the particular translation. And if you go to the fifth heading in the preface that says the following, the translation of special terms. And when you find that, I want you to look at the third point and follow along as I read. All right, now here's what it says. The third, uh, third, a particular difficulty is presented when words in biblical Hebrew and Greek refer to ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to those in the modern world. Such is the case in the translation of Ebed, Hebrew, and Dulos, Greek, terms which are often rendered slave. These terms, however, actually cover a range of relationships that require uh, a, a range of renderings, slave, bondservant, or servant, depending on the context. Further, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery, particularly in the 19th century America. For this reason, the ESV translation of the words ebed and doulos has been undertaken with particular attention to their meaning in each specific context. Thus, in Old Testament times, one might enter slavery either voluntarily, for example, to escape poverty or to pay off a debt, or involuntarily, uh, for example, by birth, by being captured in battle, or by judicial sentence. Protection for all in servitude in ancient Israel was provided by the Mosaic law, including specific provisions for release from slavery. So, just because the word Ebed is translated slave in the ESV translation doesn't mean that it equates to the chattel slavery that has plagued our nation. We must be honest and careful to not infuse into the text of Scripture what is not there, but seek to understand what is there. Now, one more illustration for you if you're struggling with the fact that our text talks about the buying and the selling of both male and female slaves, something that just doesn't settle well with us. And that's understandable in our context because this is not normal for our context in one sense. However, we have in this activity, uh, we have this activity, I should say, present in our culture, and it's something that is not only celebrated, but it is encouraged. 
In fact, many parents work long hours with their children so that they can be bought and or sold. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about our country's fixation with professional sports. When individuals work hard during their teen and college years, only to hope that they'll be bought or sold to the highest bidder so that they can play on a professional team. That's what I'm talking about here. Now, you might be tempted to say, Pastor, that doesn't count. They signed a contract and they're making millions of dollars. They're not enslaved. But I would push back and say, yes, they did sign a contract, but that contract also makes stipulations about what they can do, where they can go, how they can behave, and what happens when they get injured. And if they violate the contract, they can be fined, suspended, or even thrown off the team. And just imagine if one of those players has a friend back home where they grew up who passed away. He's married, he has a wife and some kids. They're, so, they're really tight in relationship. And he wants to go back now to visit for the funeral. And he would have to violate the contract under the COVID stipulations in order to do that. And if he did that, when he got back, he would likely be reprimanded, he would be fined, he would be suspended, all right? And uh, he would have to be quarantined away. The point here is this, that there is this, I would say, bondage put on that person. It's contractual bondage, but also they are being bought and sold. Now, just think about this. Can you imagine 100 years from now, people looking back in horror that in 2021, we are still practicing slavery and celebrating almost every day, and even on TV, that we would parade men and sometimes women evaluating their physical stature, strength and skill, so that they could be sold to the highest bidder. Would their morality be horrified by the inhumane ways that these people were, are being treated? And you would likely say, but pastor, they wouldn't have the benefit of understanding our context and our American culture. They wouldn't know that the culture was fine with the buying and selling that was going on. And friends, that's exactly my point. We must not allow our contemporary morality to be the framework that interprets the events of history, especially with what scripture has to say about slavery. We must always take culture, context, and the meaning of words into consideration when we come to a text like this. So now let's turn our attention to our text and its immediate context. We've already seen that the section, chapter 21 through 24, is case law for the Ten Commandments, but now I want you to see that verses 1 through 11 take place in the section um, of chapter 21 that is dealing with human dignity and the value of human life. In other words, the rules are given to make sure that this new Hebrew nation uh, treats humanity with dignity and that it values human life. Now, here's the proposition for the rest of our time today. What we have before us then are laws concerning the protective rights of slaves. You could even say servants there if you want to. Now, as we look closer at verses 1 through 11, we'll note that these are laws given for the rights and the protection of slaves in particular. Notice the words, he shall go out free for nothing. He shall go out. His wife shall go out. I love my master. I want to say, let her be redeemed. 
not sold to a foreigner, treated as a daughter. She shall go out for nothing. In other words, these, this is all language of freedom. This is all language of you then know the, the, the parameters and you have freedom then to act on those parameters. So these are the protections for the slave or the servant, shelter, food, relationship, protection, safety, progress, versus being on your own without a job, without food and shelter, facing danger, poverty, criminals, even prostitution. So again, these laws are concerning the protective rights of slaves. And you might ask yourself the question, why has God chosen to deal with the issue of slavery on the front end of the book of the covenant? That's a good question when you compare it to other um, law codes that we find in history. For example, the laws of Hammurabi and Eshnunna place their slave laws at the end, and they're written for the benefit of the slave owners. And most other law codes don't even deal with the subject. But here, God begins his case law dealing with the subject of slavery. And one can only surmise that the reason this is on the front end is because Israel has just themselves come out of slavery. And so God is going to uh, deal with the subject that they know full well about and to make sure that even with this paradigm of voluntary servitude, that there are rights established for that servant or slave as well as for the master. And if you remember, there's a difference between the, the lawgivers. In Egypt, the lawgiver was Pharaoh, and Pharaoh could change the law at a whim, and that's what he did, right? started out, hey, you can come and settle, but it ended up, no, we want to now uh, enslave these Jews. But we now find Israel who are coming to find that they are under Yahweh, who is a compassionate leader, a compassionate Lord, a compassionate master. But let's be clear. That absolute slavery in Israel, there is, there is no absolute slavery in Israel. In other words, the, the kind of involuntary slavery that we see with the African slave trade, that violates the Mosaic law. But there is a form of economic slavery whereby the prospect of a better life with food, clothing, shelter, and income was possible. And now as we look at the rest of our text, we'll see verses 2 through 11 are divided into two sections, rules for male slaves or servants and rules for female slaves and servants. So let's look at the rules for male servants or slaves. Now I want you to note that the very first thing that the Mosaic law says about slavery is to give a statement about how and when you go free. All right, it's not saying this is how you keep your slaves and this is what slaves have to do. It's all about the liberty and the freedom of those slaves doesn't even talk about how much you should pay for slaves or or where you should go to get them let's talk here about when your slaves leave so just imagine again the, the military mindset where you sign up for four years and you know contractually you have four years that you're supposed to work for the military you've experienced all these great things you've you've been you've experienced discipline you've been fed you've you've, you've had shelter you have clothing You've been educated, you've been trained, but you know at the end of four years, it's time for you to leave, all right? So there's, there's an end date involved. So there's actually, this, this section now can be divided into two parts. There's, first of all, contractual freedom. This is verses two through 
for contractual freedom. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm obviously make some comments about this. Verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Now, so far, so good. We understand the contract duration of time was six years, which is, by the way, uh, rooted in the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment that says basically on the seventh year, people can go free. So this is all connected to uh, the, the Ten Commandments. But those first two, uh, I would say, options or possible scenarios make sense. If he came in single, he goes out single. If he came in married, he goes out married. I think what we struggle with would be um, the, the, the third issue here. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. And so we, we, we kind of struggle with this one because we're like, well, they're married, aren't they? Shouldn't they be able to go with him when it's his time to go up? The issue here is, is one of contract. The, the issue here is one about law. And oh, here we have to understand that when, when laws are established, they're established without emotion. In other words, this is the law. And you can either exercise mercy based on that law you can exercise grace based on that law, but the law is without emotions, all right? In other words, it's to be acted on without emotions. In other words, in this case, it was the right of the male slave to leave. He had that right written in the law here, but it was also the right of the master to not let the wife and children leave. Why? Because he has a contractual agreement with them. But that didn't mean that something couldn't be worked out. The master might go beyond the demands of the law and free the wife and the children also. And history shows that such behavior was common practice, in particular in Rome. And we, we probably could surmise that this was also likely what happened in, in most situations. But there were other options for that male slave. First, he could simply wait for them to all finish their term of service while he himself worked somewhere else. We'd have to figure out, uh, you know, his lodgings and, and come to some agreement with uh, the master that he was leaving. A second option would be he could find a good job somewhere else and make enough money to pay off his, his former boss to get his wife and children out of their contractual obligation. But as I mentioned before, finding work in Israel was not like finding work in our context. I mean, it's not like, you know, get on the Internet and see if Google or Facebook or Safeway are hiring. That's not how the culture worked. How the culture typically worked is you had households that had particular skills. Some were farmers, some were tradesmen, some were tanners, some were bakers. And you would attach yourself to a particular household and you would be a servant. You would be you would have that as your job in that context under that household. And so if you left one household. The only other place you could go to find work was to another household, right? So there, there's much more of a community mentality than, the, than, than how we would typically function in thinking about how to get a job. So there was one other option for him, and we can find that in verse 5. We've looked at uh, contractual freedom, but now this is contractual um, servitude. In other words, it's not just a six-year term. This is now a willful, voluntary contract forever. And this is where we come up with the concept of a bond slave. 
So in this scenario, the male slave considers his relationship to his master. And if he says, you know what? I love my master. I love my wife and my children. I will not go out free. He has the option then of being permanently affixed to his master's household and become his bond slave. Now, again, in Western culture, we struggle with this. I mean, we might even respond by saying something like this, man, you know, get a grip on life, get some self-respect, get some dignity. You're not a slave. But again, the context is different. And just imagine this. Imagine he, he came into a job and he signed his contract and he went in to serve his master. And while he was there, he realizes he came in with nothing. But this master has been gracious. He's been kind. He sheltered him. He's fed him. He clothed him. He allowed him to, to marry another woman who was also a slave. And through this woman, they've had children and they've been, been, been raised up and he has been taught a trade. and He's been given freedom to do that job. And he's saying, you know, I really like it here. I like being a part of this household. I actually want to stay. I don't want to leave. I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. And therefore, I'm going to permanently attach myself to my master. If that was the case, there was a ceremony that took place. And it was a public ceremony. First of all, uh, the master would bring him to God, likely a reference here to those who stand in the place of God, the judges or the elders, and, and to hear the testimony of the, the, the slave, to make sure that he's not being coerced into doing something. This is his desire. This is his voluntary will. Secondly, then the master would take him to the doorpost. And this is symbolic. The doorpost was kind of like a picture of the household, much like the gates of the city were uh, really a reflection of what happened in the city. And he would he would take a, a, an, an all and, and he would, like a nail, and he would bore a hole through the ear of that slave. And that mark on his ear would be a covenant mark with blood, but it would also indicate to others that he was attached now to the household. Now, friends, this is a, this is a lot of stuff. It's just like, oh, what's going on here? This is, you know, this seems hard. How does this even relate to me? Well, as we reflect on verses 2 through 6, there's a few applications for us to consider, and they apply more specifically in a broad way to the attitudes and behaviors that we need to champion in our society. Let me give you three, and there's probably more that we could come up with, but here's three at least to begin with. Number one, it's the need to love our neighbor. We need to have compassion for those uh, who are in our society who find themselves in dire straits and to champion ways that can help them out of their poverty and to be independent and free, to be able to face the ups and downs uh, of life and to, uh, to, to face the, the task before them and to, to find the strength and the determination so that they can ultimately stand up on their own. So that means that we must love our neighbor or we can help uh, those who are doing these kinds of things and love our neighbor through our uh, our help. Secondly, not only love our neighbor, but help our neighbor more specifically. One of the best things society can do to help a person who's facing poverty is not just give them a check, but give them a job. And when you give someone a job, you're establishing both the dignity of their humanity, their value. Secondly, the, the ethic of hard work. Unfortunately, that is not often found in the context of our culture. 
We would much rather simply give a check. And what happens is the ethic of work disappears because people just get in this habit of getting a check and not having to do any work. But again, we need to be champions of saying, look, let's get this person up. We care about them. And one of the ways, the best way we see that, that we can care about them is to get them working. All right. And the third thing is this, not only to love them, help them, but also to respect our neighbor. And this speaks to the relationship between employers and employees. So I know that some of you in our church context run businesses and you have people that work for you. Also, obviously, many of you actually work for other people. So as an employer or a boss, this text calls you to treat your employees as those made in the image of God and to treat them with love, dignity, as image bearers, and not just as tools to get the work done. It calls you to be sure that you're paying them uh, with a livable wage and that their essential needs of food, shelter, and clothing are taken care of. So there's a lot to consider there for the employer. As an employee or the worker, you're encouraged to esteem uh, work as something to be done hardly as to the Lord, Scripture says. You're not just working for yourself or simply just trying to get as much as you can out of your boss, but you're working with joy and loyalty, seeking to show your love through the hard work you do every day. So there we have the rules for the male servants or slaves. Now let's move to point number three, and that would be the rules for female servants and slaves. And this is verses 7 through 11. But before we actually get there, we need to recognize that God isn't speaking into a utopian society. Now, what do you mean by utopian society? In other words, a perfect society. It's the kind of society that we often see when we watch a Disney show, right? You find this town or this village, and, it, and, and, it, and you find all these people. You have the baker, and, and, and you, you, know, you, you have the person who owns the grocery store, and and you have the, the, you know, the, the mailman and you have all these different people and they're all wandering around this village and they're all happy and they're all getting along. And they're all joyful and they're all starting to dance. And, and before you know it, they all burst out into song and everyone's just rejoicing together in this wonderful, happy community, town and village. It's Disney. It's utopia. It's not reality. And what we have in scripture, even with these case laws, is the acceptance of the reality of life rather than a perception of a utopian life. And what the scriptures teach us and these law codes understand is that, is that society, even Hebrew society, is tainted with sin. And people will not always treat one another as God would like them to. So the rules God is establishing seek to confront that sin-taintedness in society. So we have already established that servanthood in Israel was supposed to be very different from the chattel slavery that we are more familiar with. It was voluntary, it was temporary, and its purpose was to lead people into freedom. So God's slave laws were also designed to protect the family and especially women and children. Now, when we come to verse 7, we see that the female slave is to be treated differently than the male slave, right? Look at verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now, at first, if you're just going to come with your framework, you might claim, see, that is a clear 
example of the oppression of women in a male-dominated society. And the Bible is just supporting that. It's promoting that. But what you may not be willing to see is that she is actually being protected here. When a father sold his daughter, he was not trying to get rid of her or simply to improve uh, his, his bank account. He was, he was concerned about her prospects in life. And often this turned out to be a form of an arranged marriage. Now that seems really strange to us in America, where individualism and love and, and soulmates are the driving force behind marriage. But in the rest of the world, and for most of history, arranged marriages were commonplace. A poor man would send his daughter to a rich man in the hope that she would become a permanent member of his household. Now think of household not necessarily as immediate family, but everyone that would be under the roof of that household. She entered into a conditional form of servitude, hoping eventually she might marry the master's son. And it was believed that marriage was more of a transaction between families, and the idea of love was not a priority. It was believed that love would come as the marriage formed. And of course, this kind of relationship was open to abuse. So these rules for female slaves are given to provide them proper protection. And to that end, when her six years are up, she is not put out on the streets where she will have difficulty fending for herself and where she would be vulnerable for men who would try to take advantage of her. Okay, we got to get out of our minds that the, the, the Hebrew context, the, 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 the nation of Israel, as it settled and gathered, was this perfect utopian society. There were criminals. There were people that were, that were misbehaving, thus the need for laws, right? So these next rules and laws are given again. They're intended to protect the dignity and the life of, of the woman in this master-slave relationship. God's laws here provided three specific protections, and they show three different ways that a female servant can go free. So first of all, uh, the first one, I'm just calling it, I've changed my mind, right? This is where the master decides that he doesn't want her services after all. Look at verse 8. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. Get that? Let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. So the master was not allowed to treat her in any way that he wished. He was obliged to return her to her family by means of redemption. And in these arrangements, there was a probationary period where she would prove her worth. But if things didn't work out, she was not to blame, is what the text is telling us. It was the master who had the responsibility to allow her family to redeem her. He was not allowed to sell her. So again, this protects her, and there is a way out, even of this predicament. The second one, I will uh, give it the heading, uh, marry my son. The master here is pleased with her, so much so that he wants her to marry his son. Look at verse 9. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. At this point, she is only engaged, but she is welcomed as a full member of the family with all the privileges of a daughter. And it's worth noting 
that God's law had the woman's best interests at heart, a young woman could gain her freedom by being betrothed to the master's son. And once married, she would have full rights of a free citizen, so no longer in poverty. Now entering into a family where she is welcomed, and she's been given full rights now in this household because she's married to that son. The third one I'm entitling this, I've taken another wife. And this is when the master's son marries a second or even a third wife. Verse 10, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out with nothing, uh, out for nothing. She, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money, right? The idea here is that the son has chosen um, another wife either before they're married or after they're married or for some reason chooses to divorce her. Now, there's some stipulations there. Now, again, just in our minds, let's make sure we understand it's important to remember that if God is giving case law about behavior, God isn't necessarily endorsing that behavior. I mean, for example, in a little bit we'll talk about murder. God speaks about murder. Just the fact that God is speaking about something that happens in society does not mean that he's endorsing what is happening. Clearly, Scripture teaches that God created uh, marriage to be between one man and one woman. But oh, how the culture creeps into how we do things. And oh, how it changes. And so man can, can do things that God is not pleased with. We see that throughout the course of the history of, of God's people, in particular where uh, multiple or, or polygamy is taking place, right? So marriage was, was always supposed to be between a, one man and one woman. And what God is doing here, he's saying, here's a situation that may come up, and here is how this particular young woman is protected in this situation. Right? If, if he does this, if he marries, he, this, this, this son, this, this, this head of the household now, is to treat her with all the rights that she would have as far as food, shelter, clothing, even the marital rights, the intimacy rights. And notice that it says here, no, no matter what happened, these strings, these three things had to be in place. Food, clothing, marital rights. If the husband failed to provide for those things, she was released from her servitude. That doesn't mean kick to the curb. It just means that she was free to leave. There was no bondage. She didn't have to fulfill any more of any kind of contract. So in summary, all of these examples are there to help Moses and the judges of Israel to maintain justice and protection for the nation's most vulnerable people, poor. So what we initially see is hor a horrible set of rules and regulations about the buying and selling of slaves is in actual fact God establishing rules of compassion and care for those whose lives have been affected by poverty. Thus, in Hebrew society, there was a way out of your debt and poverty. It required hard work, trust in the Lord, and the compassion of heads of households who have the ability to hire people to work for them or even to marry into their family. And, of course, this meant much, much more than simply getting a job, but food, clothing, shelter, and a household protection, and a household that you were now a part of. So we, we've looked at the, 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 the rules for the male slaves and the rules for the female slaves, and I want to bring this all together now with some 
some final concluding thoughts. He's like, okay, that's helpful. Uh, thank you for walking us through all this, Pastor Rob, but how does this connect with us? Well, we've touched on a few things that maybe you realize actually connect to what we are supposed to be doing or how we are supposed to be living. But I want to think of it in terms of gospel implications from this text. And, and really there's three main headings that I want us to see and I want us to consider here that really flow out of this text. First of all, that we are enslaved. We are all slaves to someone or something. Now, apparently, the great theologian Bob Dylan believed that to be true. I say that, obviously, in quotes, right? In his song, Gotta Serve Somebody, he says the following, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And he, that's pretty rough theology, but he got his theology right there. But now let's turn to a truly great theologian uh, whose name is the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 6. And Paul is arguing here about our sin and our struggle with sin. In Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 16, I just want you to notice how Paul brings in the subject of slavery and sin and how it really flows out of even the text that we're in here. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Do you... Uh, not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. All right, you have slaves to sin, slaves to righteousness, but there was something happening now in the heart of the individual that actually moved them from the place of being a slave to sin and now being a slave to righteousness. But notice the language here, slave to sin, slave to righteousness, right? We're all slaves to someone or something. That's what Paul is saying. Now look at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So when you've been set free from sin, you've become a slave to righteousness. You are a slave of God. And the result of that is sanctification and the promise and the certainty of eternal life. And that's why in verse 23, the verse we all know very well, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life comes by being a slave to righteousness and a slave to God. Now, you may not have thought of things in those terms, but all of us who are here today, either by a live stream or in presence, we are all enslaved to someone or something. The question here is, to whom are you enslaved? All right? Who are you going to serve? Who will be your master? So we're all enslaved. Secondly, we are redeemed. We are redeemed. Christ's death on the cross paid the debt we owe to set us free. In fact, Mark chapter 10, verse 45 
which we might say is the heart of the book of Mark. It might even be the theme of the book of Mark. We find here Jesus saying what he has come to do. He says, for, excuse me, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That word ransom is the word that means to redeem. The idea is he is paying the debt. He is paying off that debt so that we can go free. Of course, that debt is all the stuff, is all the wage of our sin, right? He's come and he's paid for it. How does he pay for it? He pays for it by shedding his blood, not by being an example, but he pays for it by dying on the cross as a sacrifice once for all. So the Savior becomes a slave, right? He took upon himself the form of a slave, Scripture says, so that he could redeem a host of slaves through his sacrifice on the cross. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? And it's a wonderful picture that goes right back into the issues that are related into this text. So we're enslaved, we're redeemed. But finally here, we are free. Now, I just want, want in your mind to trace the events of Israel's journey, right? Slaves in Egypt, and here comes God who hears their cry, and he delivers them, and he delivers them by virtue of blood with the Passover meal, but he also delivers them through the, the Red Sea. And ultimately, he delivers them so that they can go into the wilderness and serve him, it says. They are saved, they are delivered so they can serve Yahweh. Right? Get the picture. And now when we think about us, we are slaves to sin, and we are delivered by what Christ has done, and then we are free to serve Christ. Now, again, God brought them out of bondage of slavery in Egypt to go into the wilderness to serve him. So Exodus isn't so much about freedom, hear this, but about the transfer of allegiances from one master to another, from Egypt and from Pharaoh to Yahweh, who is their benevolent God. So, friends, we, we must get out of our mind our American ideas of freedom. In our culture, freedom is the ability to do what we want. Because for us, freedom means I decide what I do. But in the Bible, freedom is the ability to do what we should. Because we have a master, and his name is Christ, who therefore is giving us instructions on how to live. Let me say that again. In our culture, freedom is the ability to do what we want, but in the Bible, freedom is the ability to do what we should, because Jesus Christ is our master, and he is the one that is dictating how we should live. The Apostle Paul emphasizes this point in Colossians chapter 3, and I want to encourage you to turn there as we bring this right to a close. Colossians chapter 3 verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. He's emphasizing how his children should live and quickly addresses the relationship of husband and wives and children and parents. And then he deals now with 
slaves and masters. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Notice what it says. Bond servants. Aha. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of what we just talked about here in chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. This is this, is this relationship, this desire now to attach yourself to this benevolent master. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Get this now. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Now, the, the, the point here that's, that, that we need to see here is that these slaves now are serving in such a way as to serve the Lord. The jobs that they're doing, the way they're relating to their master, the way they're interacting is because they are doing this as serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greater master. He is the one who is seeking to dictate how they should live and how you and I should live. Continue on at verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, Treat your bondservants, your slaves, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, just think about that. The masters now are even given instructions based on the fact that they have a master in heaven. So bosses, they are constrained, if they're followers of God, followers of Christ, they're constrained by doing the will of Christ. Slaves? Workers, they are constrained by doing the will of Christ. Both of these things are at work. Isn't it interesting how the gospel is this great leveler? And, and here Paul is writing to a church, the Colossian church, where in the context of the church you have brother, 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 and those brothers may be slaves, they may be masters, but together they are the body of Christ. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. So we have sin, salvation, sanctification, bondage, redemption, freedom. These are the patterns that we're, we're seeing here unfolding in our passage. The story is told of a visit Abraham Lincoln once made to a slave auction where he was appalled to see the buying and selling of human beings. And his heart was especially drawn to a young woman uh, who, who was on the block whose story seemed to be uh, told in her eyes. She looked with hatred and contempt at everyone around her. She had been used to being abused all her life, and this time was just one more cruel humiliation. The bidding began, and Lincoln offered a bid. As other amounts were bid, he counterbid with larger amounts until he won. When he paid the auctioneer the money and took a title to the young woman, she stared at him with vicious contempt. She asked him what he was going to do next with her, and he said, I'm going to set you free. Free, she asked. Free for what? Just free, Lincoln answered. Completely free. Free to do whatever I want to do? Yes, he said. Free to do whatever you want to do. Free to say whatever I want to say? Yes. 
free to say whatever you want to say, free to go wherever I want to go, she added with skepticism. Lincoln answered, you are free to go anywhere you want to go. Then she responded, I'm going with you. Now, whether the story is true or not, it shows us what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Anyone who trusts in Christ for salvation has been delivered from sin and death. We are now free. Free for what? Free to say, Jesus, I'm going with you. Now, friends, this is really important for us. It's important for us to understand that there are people outside the body of Christ who have a wrong understanding of what Scripture teaches on this particular subject. And we, as even the body of Christ, can come to a text like this and just not even want to touch it because we're fearful about what it says. But if we take the time to, to get in there and to seek to understand what's being said, we have a better understanding and we recognize what is actually going on there. It's God caring for the most vulnerable people in our society, the poor, and making sure that the protections are in place. Secondly, it is a picture of what we receive as the children of God, where we are slaves in bondage who are brought out from that bondage by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And we're not just set free from that and left to ourselves. We are set free from that, and now we become slaves of Christ. And he is a most wonderful Lord and Master. And we need to do our bit to listen to him, to humble ourselves before him, and to follow his will. Lord, help us today. This is a very difficult um, topic and, and passage even for us to think through. And I, what I ask that with what I've done here today, just to set the stage and to give some, some nuance of understanding to this text that, that we will be uh, not only more informed, but Lord, we would have a better appreciation for the language of the gospel that we find, especially in the New Testament. And Lord, that de declares what has actually happened to us, who we actually were, and what Christ has done for us. And why it's important for us in our discipleship, not just to think that we're on our own, but Lord, that you are a master, and you are a benevolent master, seeking to help us to rid ourselves of Egypt and the sin that so easily holds us back, and to put on righteousness that comes from you. And Lord, we, we are in awe that you would love us so much. We're, we're thankful that you care enough about us. And we're, Lord, just amazed that we have been brought into your household. And you have raised us up as sons with full rights of inheritance. Lord, all these images flowing through this passage, Lord, help us understand some of the beauty and magnificence, Lord, of the gospel that you have bestowed upon us. Lord, help us to love it, to live it. And, and to long for a, a greater journey in it when we ask these things in the precious holy name. Amen.